Yes, we're going to talk about lines, lines that go out the door. We're going to talk. Well, you know, the DMV used to be this completely terrifying place. It used to have, like, the worst line, right? And I think it's one of the places, I don't know about all the other 49 states, but here in Connecticut, they, they got smarter and it became a less punitive experience. But not all lines are like that. Of course, not all lines are punitive at all. A lot of people, you know, like certain lines, believe it or not. As I said before the show, I hate lines. I hate lines. I hate traffic jams. They are basically the same thing. Uh, and I, I'm, I know I'm at a far end of the continuum about this, but we're going to explore the entire continuum. Joining us here at the beginning is Richard Larson, a professor of data systems and society at MIT. I don't have to say Massachusetts Institute of Technology, do I? He often <laughs> goes by the name Dr. Q. That is how I intend to address him the entire time, because I like that. Uh, also joining us is Marie Helwig Larson, a professor of psychology at Dickinson College, who has specifically studied the kind of subculture and norms of people waiting in line for <laughs> for U2 tickets. It's like really specific, but I think it's also very generalizable. So... Dr. Q, let's just begin by saying we're in lines sometimes if we're not in lines. I mean, we're in lines that we sometimes can't see. If you are waiting for on the waiting list for Green Bay Packers season tickets, there are roughly 140,000 people on that list with you and about 750 season tickets change hands every year. Uh, and, and so there's, as you will, will tell us, there are sort of invisible lines that we're in, whether we're standing in a specific spot or not. Uh, absolutely correct. If I recall correctly, I think those uh, the tickets for the Green Bay Packers will go to your grandchildren. Yes. <laughs> 50 <laughs> years is not an uncommon wait. <laughs> yeah, we're in all kinds of, each one of us is in multiple lines as we speak. And uh, most of them, of course, if, if I'm sitting here at my computer, uh, so I'm not in a visible line, but uh, I'm waiting for this, waiting for that. And, and, and most of us are like that. Many of these lines are trivial. Some of them are life-threatening, like waiting for an organ donation. So uh, yeah, and there are all kinds of, uh, lines are just as varied as human behavior is varied. Right. So it's and, very, hard, very hard to categorize. Them. Right. And human attitudes toward lines. I mean, I think sort of first come, first served is sort of the baseline default setting of human attitudes. But people have all kinds of thoughts about this. Let's hear Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld. This is A1 as they're waiting in a Chinese restaurant to be seated. People are seated first come, first served. It should be based on who's hungriest. 
Uh, Dr. Q, that's not typical. It really is first-come, first-served for most people. Uh, and, and there's also a question of whether you can achieve that easily or not. And maybe it's time to talk about the single serpentine line, which I, as I understand, first of all, you need to describe it. But second of all, as I understand, a number of different companies claim to have invented or debuted it. Uh, that is correct. I think Wendy's claims to have invented it uh, for fast food. Uh, because uh, uh, the founder of Wendy's, Thomas, was uh, he, he, he hated to have people cut in front of him in line. He, he noticed his customers uh, hated that. And they did a survey and they found out that people would prefer a single serpentine line with twice the average weight as one where people cut in front of you and it's all, you know, uh, a free for all. So that's a single serpentine line. But you first come, first serve. Here's an interesting oddity about queuing. The average time you wait in queue is the same, whether it's first come, first serve, last come, first serve, or service in random order. Now, how does that surprise you? Well, it doesn't seem even feasible. But that's uh, we can prove it mathematically. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to argue with Dr. Q about something like about cues, so uh, I, I'm with you. But I think also, and we're, we're about to get into this with both you and with Marie, um, a lot of times it's the experience, too, the experience of being in line, what you think is happening, how it feels to you. Uh, let's hear, I'm, I'm sure the same person wrote both snatches of comedy that we're, we're playing here in sequence, but this is from uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, here is Larry David complaining about the line in the store that he's in. He wanted to buy something that was on the shelf, uh, and, and what happens is somebody else at a different register who got there a little later than he did somehow or other managed to buy it just because of the register that person was at. You have a line problem in the store. The lines move completely disproportionately. You know, there's a way to fix that too. You know, like they're doing Disneyland, you know how the line snakes around? Go to a deli, you take a number. So it's fair, that's all. Because you probably don't add up stuff at the same rate, but there's a way to solve it. One line, it's not a crazy idea. They wouldn't have stoned me back a thousand years ago for bringing up the one line idea. There's one line, everybody feels good. They don't feel they're being cheated. Right. So uh, I think you're both going to talk about this, but Dr. Q, that's a big perception, right? I mean, A, that you're not being cheated, and B, I mean, a nice thing about the deli line that he talks about is if it's a really long line, you can go, you can take a number, and then you can kind of keep an eye on how the numbers are doing. You can go off and buy some broccoli. Absolutely. We have something called we call slips and skips. So if you have, multi if you have parallel lines, let's just say you have, you have two lines, A and B, uh, if you're in A, somebody joins B after you join in A, but gets served before you, uh, they've slipped over you. From their point of view, they've skipped uh, uh, over you. And But you're the victim. You're, you're the slippy, and that other person's the skippy. And it's a, what they call a non-zero-sum game. The person who actually got ahead of you by, by being in line B might not even be aware that he's out of uh, he or she is out of turn. But you, it's something you might remember tomorrow for the next day, where I've had episodes where I remembered it three weeks later. And actually, that's how I got involved with the psychology of queuing, things like that. All right. So, Marie, these these situations, they need rules. And the question is, who is going to create these rules? In other words, if I think it's OK for me to find a folding chair and put it in my spot and go off uh, for an hour and a half and get some food and come back, and you don't think so, and you're behind me, we have a problem. So talk about how people at U2 concerts, and these are not always the same people. These could be different venues, different countries, whatever. Um, they, they make rules, right? 
Correct. So queuing, uh, of course, is governed, like we talked about, by the social norm of first come, first serve. But in very long lines, such as uh, perhaps the the uh, queen's uh, funeral or getting to see the coffin uh, recently, or uh, a U2 concert in which the super fans actually return to the a concert the night before, maybe done at 10, and go right into line the next morning. So these are fans who have a lot invested in the outcomes of getting to be in front of the stage, whereas the rest of the fans just have a ticketed number. So if you think about the queue as a social system in which the more complex the social system is, the more the first come first serve doesn't really work anymore, like you said, because you can't stay in a line for 10 hours without going to the bathroom or getting something to eat. You might have uh, friends hold a spot in line for you, but it's somewhat negotiated or unclear whether you can hold the line for two friends or 10 friends, maybe 20 friends is, is too many friends. So in long queues, the fans, in this case, in the research I did with the U2 fans, actually had to orchestrate their own expectations and norms around these rules. And interestingly, with this particular uh, group of people, like you said, it's very generalizable to other long fans. The fans had a good time, just like some of the people um, reported in the media about the waiting for the see the, the, the queen's coffin. Um, so these are, are maybe more positive outcomes than in the airport, where we also seem to uh, wait in a lot, lot of long lines and, and might become grumpy, right? So the context of the situation uh, matters uh, a great deal. So they uh, actually had fans themselves orchestrate the system of what would seem acceptable. Um, and that system replicated from U2 concert to U2 concert, even though the fans were not necessarily the same. Right. So because the Doritos Fiesta Bowl venue, whatever it is that they're in, they don't want they don't want to be in charge of stuff. They don't want to be resolving disputes all the time. So the, the, exactly. And that's actually one of the things that make people very angry is that they feel that there should be rules. Um, and when the first come first rule is not sufficient, then they would like someone to police the queue. And what was special about the U2 lines, which made it a good uh, example of how social norms can develop and be maintained even when no one is calling it, um, is not what fans prefer. They actually asked both the venue staff and U2 if they would police the line, and they said no. So in this particular instance, I, I think it exemplifies that we are uncomfortable with negotiating uh, the deeper aspects of the line and would like the store that has the long line for the new, uh, you know, I don't know, iPhone or whatever it is you're waiting for to hand out tickets. I have some other very clear method by which people cannot cheat instead of you having to be the one that busts the cheaters, which no one really wants to do. Right. Actually, there's a new iPhone that is also a pair of Nike sneakers. And apparently that one, the lines for that is they're just insane. All right. So Marie's been mentioning a particular event. Uh, if you're listening to this sometime close to the air date or during the air date, you already know why we're doing this show. We may rerun this show two years from now and it'll still make every bit as much sense. But yes, let's hear uh, the Daily Show report on the line that Marie is talking about, A3. 
With lines now stretching five miles to see her lying in state, the predicted wait tonight, an incredible 22 hours. We've been waiting for 10 hours. We've been up since four o'clock this morning. Even soccer star David Beckham lining up overnight for 13 hours. I think that was a reminder of how much people in this, in this country really like to line up. It really is a national pastime. British people enjoy queuing, as they say in this country. That's an interesting takeaway. No, why are these people here? They just like lining up. That's uh, is there something else? No, no, they just really like lining up. I don't think they also like the queen, but, but this is true. Apparently, standing in line is really popular in Britain. It's like their national pastime. And before you make fun of them for doing something so boring, don't forget America's national pastime is baseball, you know, which is, <laughs> yeah, when people act as if someone died, but they didn't. But 22 hours in line, that's no joke. 22 hours, because remember, there's no iPhone at the end of that line, all right? It's just a box, and you don't even get to open the box. So, Dr. Q, there is some truth in all this, right? The, the British people, I mean, it's obvious that what happened with the QE2 line was that it turned into a society not unlike the ones that Marie has studied. And people were saying that they were making new friends who would be their friends for life. And David Beckham was waiting in line, showing up at 2 a.m. thinking he could beat the line that way and it didn't work and waiting in line for 12 hours with everybody else. But, but there is underlying that, the point that is made, that different cultures have different attitudes about lines. Absolutely. I think we've all heard the phrase, quote, an Englishman, even if he is alone, forms an orderly queue of one, mm-hmm. unquote. And, uh, yeah, and, and so the British, with the British former Commonwealth, through Hong Kong and Singapore and, 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 and you know, other parts of the world, have gotten this uh, first come, first serve, this straight line uh, in queues, queues around the world, and if you if you uh, uh, go to Hong Kong, you'll still see the British tradition, but you also see now the the mainland Chinese tradition. And I have examples of conflicts where the behavior of people in the in for the from the two traditions are 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 are, are quite different. Oh, absolutely. And as we go, if you look around the world, I mean, in Japan, they're like really, really great about waiting in line. Even after Fukushima, where people had to wait in really long lines for relief, for support, uh, the lines were orderly and, you know, relatively complaint-free. Uh, not something you could... And one thing that I heard was that there, I think there are some Latin American companies where if you walk into a store, maybe even the kind of store where ordinarily you would maybe take a number here or something like that, what you do is you just yell in Spanish... I guess who's last? Who who's last? And then you know that you're after that person, and everybody else can that you can all mill around the store now because you just have to watch one person and and make sure that you go after that person. So yeah, different cultures, different things. So we should talk a little bit about perception because Marie, one of the I mean, we can wait in line for. 30 minutes and have it be a radically different experience. And one of the things that shows up in your paper about this is that how many people are behind you in line can affect your perception. You could have 300 people in front of you and have 3,000 people behind you, and that'll feel better than if you have 300 people in front of you and only have 100 people behind you, even though you still got to wait for those same 300 people, right? Absolutely. So it is all about your perception. There's a cultural perception of what seems appropriate that we just talked about, but there's also situational perceptions. One thing that is incredibly frustrating for the same amount of weight, if it seems like the person serving you is messing around and not being focused, or you might have an expectation when there's 20 cash registers open at Walmart, 
Um, why do you have to wait in line? Why can't another person serve you? Or some stores, the people are working very slowly at the register, right? So even though there's an objective amount of waiting, all the factors influence um, whether it seems long. People in the U2 lines know exactly when the queue is going in, which was at six o'clock. And everyone wanted to maintain order in the queue so that the queue does not rush in right at six o'clock, which then scrambles the queue, which would seem fundamentally unfair about the people who had waited longer. So people's perceptions of what is an acceptable wait or um, the circumstances under being more tolerant of friends cutting in line uh, as opposed to strangers is what we found. And we also found um, that fans who were very committed to the goal or were further behind in line were um, fundamentally more upset about potential uh, meltdown or disorder in the line. Right. So the goal you have definitely also affects your perception of ultimately the voluntary line of whether it's worthwhile or not, but also your reactions to misbehavior in the line. But I love the idea that if I have 3,000 people behind me, my my place in line feels more valuable to me than I do if I have a much smaller contingent behind me. Exactly. And that's tied to the goal as well. So it seems frustrating in the airports, at least after the pandemic, how chaotic and disorganized they have been, because that's contrary to what perhaps things have typically been before the pandemic, as well as the feeling that this is just a nuisance that you need to get through to get to a desired goal. Right. You first need to check in and then there's the security line and then you have to wait to get on the plane and all these different lines. Maybe there's even food lines and, and bathroom lines that maybe seem frustrating and unnecessary, which, of course, is a problem for the people who would like their customers to return, in this case, to the airport. Right. By the way, we're going to deal with bathroom lines, uh, particularly uh, ladies room, as they used to be called, lines uh, towards the end of the show today. But so, Dr. Q, there's other aspects to uh, once again, it's not how long you wait. It's how you experience how long you wait. So there's ways in which people, clever planners, cue theorists, can manipulate that. For example, managing expectations uh, about how long you're going to have to wait. Explain how that works. Well, Disney is one of the exemplars of that. Uh, the idea is in the service industries, your, your customer satisfaction is equal to the difference between the expectation of service to a, a level and what's actually delivered to you. If if if, if you if, if the service delivered to you exceeds your expectations, you're happy. If it, it doesn't, you're unhappy. So what Disney might say is, oh, if you if the line's out to here and you join it, you can anticipate an hour until you get to a Space Mountain or wherever you're going, and uh, maybe it's a young couple with two kids. They say, well, let's join it there, and then we'll we'll have lunch afterwards. After 40 minutes, they uh, not 60 minutes, they find that they're joining the ride. And uh, one spouse says to the other, hey, honey, we're 20 minutes ahead of schedule. So it's a matter that to, to, instead of 40 minutes we waited, we're actually 20 minutes ahead of schedule because uh, their expectations were set at 60 minutes. Yeah, it feels like a victory yeah. instead of something else. Um, so, so, Marie, I know you have to go in just a few minutes here, and, and you're the person. One of the things I've been dying to talk about is the so-called zipper merge. Let me just set this up. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, you're in uh, one of two lanes of traffic. You are told that up ahead, one of those two lanes is going to close off. And so the, the two lanes have to merge into one. And there's two schools of thought. Actually, the Maliazzi brothers used to host Car Talk, used to have arguments about this. They, they were both MIT graduates, too. Uh, and one of them believed that you should merge as soon as possible. Uh, and the other one said, no, 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 you should occupy both lanes as long as possible and merge at the 
at the point of the elimination of one of the lanes. So give us your take on this. So I think, uh, first of all, uh, people don't understand the zipper merge. So right there, you have the basic problem. And the problem is that it's a two-step solution, like you pointed out, namely that people have to stay in their lane and then take turns. So the objective fact, as I understand it, is that it's better for everyone to fill both lanes because that makes the traffic jam um, go, uh, you know, it doesn't take as long. There's not as much of a slowdown. So the objective fact is fighting with the fact that most of us have learned to merge uh, when when possible. And people might still think that that is the default. It's predictable is what I always do, or it might seem safer. So the problem is that because half of the people are maybe more merge too soon, you have crowding in the right lane and you have people in the left lane passing people. And then it's not a zipper merge anymore that seems fair because it now seems like the people passed you. In other words, it seems like a queue skipping problem at the end in which some people merged and are now in the queue on the right. And then it seems like someone wants to force their way in in an unfair um, event. So what you have is you have the taking turns at the end um, is a social norm that in this situation violates the first come first serve norm. So it's really two different norms that are in conflict at the end that make people in the right lane who merged early very angry, but really they just did it wrong. And I think the signage is often a huge problem because it's actually not clear that you're supposed to stay in your lane. Right. Now, that they should have somebody who waits in line for U2 uh, concerts uh, make some signs that would explain <laughs> all of that so that we would have some kind of consensus. Because you, you, you're absolutely right. It's the lack of consensus that causes the problem. Uh, that's Marie Helwig Larson, uh, professor of psychology at Dickinson College, who has studied U2 concert lines. Uh, we are going to take a little break. Dr. Q will be back, and you'll meet somebody else, somebody who waits in line for a living. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers. So we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
We're talking about lines, cues. Canadians call them lineups. Uh, sometimes. They don't say that all the time. Uh, and there are lines all over the place. It turns out goby, uh, a kind of fish, the goby fish, uh, they have a waiting line for breeding position, for breeding dominance. Uh, and I guess all the fish know. <laughs> the fish all know what they're supposed to do. It's like a U2 concert. And surfers to stay aquatic for a second, also have a line. I confirmed this today with my uh, very, very close friend of uh, 50 years or something, Scott Sherman, who is actually, I think, regarded as, currently regarded as the greatest Jewish surfer over 60 uh, in the world. But he said, yeah, you can't, There's you're out there and there's waves and you can't cut in front of other people. It's called sneaking or I think dropping in is the other term. But fights break out if people do that. So anyway, there, there's all that. And we are still talking to Dr. Q. Uh, he uh, is really Richard Larson, professor of data systems and society at MIT. Also joining us for this segment, uh, Jennifer Goff, uh, uh, is a um, owner and founder, is the owner and founder of Skip the Line, a line sitting uh, local delivery and personal assistance service. Uh, and uh, well, first of all, uh, you know, I just want to finish up what we were talking about before, Dr. Cube, that, that idea of making the line more pleasurable or manipulating our experience of being in line. You know, another thing Disney can do is just have Goofy come and like visit you and stuff while you're in line. But tell the story about the bank in Manhattan, I think, that yeah. added that. Yeah, go ahead. Tell that story. Yeah. Well, first of all, Manhattan is a, is a, a great place for Q stories. Yeah. My favorite one goes back to the 50s, is when uh, high-rises were being built post-World War II, uh, uh, rise, rises, and people were complaining about uh, uh, delays for the, for, the, for, the ele- for the elevators and, uh, uh, you know, during rush hours and lunch periods, et cetera. And so some enterprising person came by and looked, and he said, yes, there are d- delays, but maybe, the, maybe that's the wrong definition of the problem. Maybe the definition is the complaints about the delays. Well, how do I get rid of the complaints? So in an inspiring moment, he said, why don't we put floor to ceiling mirrors next to each of the elevators, all up and down the building? Guess what? The complaints about delays dropped to near zero and the delays themselves were unchanged. So that's an example of perception management. Now in Manhattan, the Manhattan Savings Bank, which has since been bought out by a larger bank, uh, they realized that their clientele uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, were down there working and they only had lunch hours to do their banking. And so therefore the lines would grow inside the bank kind of long and they might be 20, 30 minutes in the bank. And so they decided to buy a, get a concert pianist. The concert pianist would, would play music from quarter after 11 to, 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 to 1.30 every day. And all of a sudden people who went in and did their banking even stayed until the current, to, to, the current performance was over. And an enterprise and entrepreneur actually sold tickets outside for $4 to go in and listen to the concert. I think he, so got, they, a, he got arrested for that, right? Because it was a total scam. I mean, anybody could go in. Right. It, was, it, was, it was a total scam. That's yeah. right. So um, let's talk a little bit about what happens when you don't want to wait in line. And we'll come back to Dr. Q about just sort of people who can just, in one way or another, pay to avoid it. But another thing you could do is hire somebody. And that's where Jennifer Goff comes in, as I said, owner and founder of Skip the Line. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, Jennifer, but just in case it's not, explain how this works. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Um, So you can hire us to wait in line for, you know, anything in the D.C. area. We're just based in Washington, D.C. for now. Um, I got started in 2017 when I returned from traveling and I needed to make some extra cash. So I went to a Game of Thrones pop up bar in the city and just started asking people if they would want to hire me to wait in line for them while they went to go get something to eat or something to drink. Um, and 
it worked out really well and it kind of snowballed into a little business, but we can wait for concerts, different tickets, you know, limited release items. Like you were mentioning the iPhone, um, even in DC, we wait for things like Supreme court cases. So, you know, we can either get you the tickets and meet you to give them to you, or you can meet us in line to easily swap places and we keep you updated via text and all that good stuff. Right. For some reason or other, I think it's because the seating is so limited there. The Supreme Court is kind of a big thing. If they're doing a big decision, it is a big line and there aren't enough seats. And I, I think that is sort of a time when, when maybe the, the, you do want to hire uh, somebody uh, like you or the people you work with. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, I'm going to ask you how you feel about this. I was listening to an interview today with uh, another professional line sitter, and he admitted that on some occasions he kind of subcontracted. He'd hired somebody else to do like a couple hours of his shift while he went off to go to the bathroom or eat or something like that. Is that a common practice? Is it something? Is it okay to do that? Well, you know, if it's something that's a really long wait, you know, we've waited days for Supreme Court cases or overnight for limited release items, we'll swap out people on our team. It's not really subcontracted, but it's mainly so that people can actually take a break, use the bathroom, you know, so that they don't leave the spot unattended. I think people, other people in line feel more comfortable if the spot is attended by someone rather than it being completely empty if somebody goes off for a couple hours to take a break. Right. I also have to say, I mean, it's kind of apropos of what Dr. Q was, was saying about ways and like even having the piano player. Well, I mean, we now have the equivalent of the piano player in our pocket. Right. I feel as though having smartphones has completely revolutionized waiting of all kinds, especially waiting in line, because, you know, you really have a lot more control uh, of what you do. You you can do something that that you'd probably be doing anyway, looking at your damn phone. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, when I started, it was just me, I waited in tons of lines. And I did the same thing. I would listen to podcasts, you know, read things on the internet, read ebooks, um, you know, whatever, play games, you know, and even talk to people online. And, you know, we do make sure to let people know behind us, hey, we are waiting for other people, they're going to be switching out. So it kind of leads to a great conversation about it. And a lot of people are unaware that, you know, you can hire somebody. Um, one thing I want to say, I don't think any of our guests is necessarily prepped for this, but uh, it was, it's was it been clear in recent years, uh, particularly in some southern states, that on election days, uh, there are really, really long lines to vote. And they often seem to be the result of attempts to discourage people from voting. There's typically one side. And I think we know which side that is wants fewer people to vote. Uh, and so that's another use of lines is you can try to actually deter somebody uh, from doing something. I think another thing that's clear from those lines is it's another situation where people often bond, form a community, realize they're there for a very specific purpose and experience the whole thing somewhat differently. But but Dr. Q, it's also true that they're just like, you know, I mean, I, I just I live in Connecticut. I used to think when I was at the DMV waiting for, you know, my driver's license or something. I bet you Paul Newman doesn't have to do this. You know, I, he lives in, he lived in Westport back in those days. I think Paul Newman doesn't wait in this line. So there are. There's that, too. There's like some people that just don't really have to do some of this stuff. Uh, that's true. The DMV uh, in Massachusetts used to be just as bad as the one you were talking about. They used to say, bring a lawn chair and uh, imagine being there for three, uh, three hours. But, you know, places like that now have revolutionized. And a lot of things you have to you used to have to go there personally. You can now do online, uh, you know, on, on your computer, which is great. So a, a lot of old fashioned cues have really vanished in the last few decades. 
It used to be you have to queue up for an attendant to put gasoline into your car. Now, <laughs> only New Jersey, I think, still has that. And the other 49 states, if you put the gas in your in your uh, in yourself, and there's so many pumps, there's rarely a queue uh, at, at 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 gas stations. And uh, used to have to queue to go in banking. We talked about banking before. Well, now with the ubiquitous 24/7 ATMs, most of the banking needs can be handled at a, at an ATM, and there's virtually no queuing there. So we should, you know, we should thank our, our blessings that uh, a lot of old-fashioned queues. Uh, uh, have gone. They're, they're gone away of history. Right. So, but there's also, I, and I, I know that you've experienced this too, there, for example, at airports, there are ways in which you be, can, can kind of become a VIP and there are now even different statuses that you can apply for, uh, particularly vis-a-vis the, TCA, the, the TSA line, right? There's ways in which there's the common ruck that's standing 150 people deep in a TSA line or some other, you know, an airline line. But then there are people who have different kind of statuses. That's true. Like the, like the pre-check line, the TSA right. pre-check, which, uh, which I have, which is nice. You, you avoid that long, long, long line. And there's another one, too. Is it called clear, where they just have facial recognition? Yeah. So there, there are three different ways to get through airport queues. The last time I was at an airport, which I have to say was before COVID. So uh, uh, my knowledge may be obsolete given the last two, two and a half years. Right. But I mean, I also feel like when you exercise those things, well, let me just give an example that's very specific to our state. So New Haven is very famous for its pizza and Sally's Pizza in New Haven is in some uh, imaginations the, the, the best of the best, uh, the creme de la, the mozzarella de la mozzarella. And, and it famously has a line and like 90 minutes is not or at least historically 90 minutes has not been unusual you know, to wait to get in to eat pizza. But there's also a number that you can call if you're a certain kind of person. And in uh, the Gorman Bashar documentary, Pizza, A Love Story, the singer Michael Bolton admits, admits that he has that number. He can call it. He he won't have to wait in line. He can jump. He can pass everybody. But he said, it's a bad feeling. You just hang your head. You know all these hungry people are staring at you. And some of them have probably <laughs> figured out who you are, too. So that's another sort of psychic cost, right? Dr. Q is, you know, yeah, I can maybe skip this line, but then I have to accept the fact that people will, with some justification, hate me. Uh, well, that's true. I mean, it could. Uh, uh, there are different lines at Disney, depending on how much you're willing to pay. And uh, I've never felt that people uh, at the airport in the long line resented the fact that I had this pre-check thing. It was in a shorter line because I invested ahead of time and researched it and, and, and filled out the paperwork to, to, to get that status. I don't know about the pizza thing that you're talking about. How much do they have to pay to get that phone number? You just have to be a VIP. You don't pay anything. Uh, oh, I see. I, will, I would be- like to say that Gorman Bichard, who made that documentary, he also has that phone number. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know. So, Jennifer, I'm also thinking somebody in your business, you've got to have become pretty savvy just and, and maybe achieved a kind of jungle cunning uh, about how to wait in lines, how to pick out a line. Uh, I don't know if you're at the if you're at Costco and there's eight different lines at eight different registers. I don't know. Are you really good at just sort of figuring out how to navigate this, not based on any kind of pre-planning, but just sort of knowing certain things? Yeah, I mean, I guess it just sometimes you never know, you know, like you said, you might show up at Costco and there's a bunch of different lines that you were not expecting. Um, So, I mean, if you can do some research on it ahead of time, that's always good, but that's not always the case. You might be somewhere and you're completely unexpecting there to be a wait. Um, 
So I can't give a ton of advice um, for, you know, like you said, for waiting, what we do waiting in line, we do some, some research and we kind of go down there and time the line and, and take a look at it. But just in everyday life, it just kind of depends. Right. I, Dr. Q, in the old days at grocery stores, I had a theory that one person with 40 items was better than three people with 30 items, with a total of 30 items ahead of me. In other words, it's really kind of the transaction that often takes a lot of time as opposed to the number of items. But, but now my assumption is this is all before self-check. I just assume that no matter what things look like, self-check is going to be a better option. Is that essentially correct? I think that's correct. And, you know, my, my wife is showing me how to use the ultimate self-check where, you, where you're actually purchasing the things as you pick them up and put them in the cart with a, with a, with a laser gun scanner. And you, and you, you basically just walk out, of, of, well, you know, give them a waiver credit card or Apple Pay, and there's no queue. So, and that's an example of a lot of things in life. You, you, you think if you have a queue, like a regular supermarket, and you have a, a, a bags of groceries you're going to have to get, uh, the, the old-fashioned way. Now there are multiple ways to go through a supermarket, and the self-check is is one of them. Right. I think Big Y has added that, uh, although I'm scared of it. I'm not ready for it. It's going to take a while. So uh, yeah. I guess let me just ask you one last question, Dr. Q. I mean, there's sort of a sense in which, I mean, you said that you haven't gone to an airport since the pandemic started, but there's sort of a sense is that maybe for theme parks or just other things in which architects and engineers make plans for handling lines that we might be living in a different world post pandemic, partly because they had to think about the whole thing kind of differently. I don't know. Does that feel true or is it just going to be the usual gradual incremental change as people figure out better ways to handle the queue experience? Are you referring to the fact that people don't want to be as close as they were before the pandemic because of the the, the issue of still infection of COVID? Yeah, I kind of I don't kind of don't want to wait in an indoor line. I mean, you know, right, right. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And and they're, and they're projecting the flu season this year is going to be very very hard. And it's the same kind of projections with masks, et cetera, and and, and spatial distancing that you want there. So you're 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 you're, you're probably right. I mean, uh, my wife and I have not eaten indoors at a restaurant for two and a half years. And right. you know, we, we, we don't care if it's 32 degrees outside, we'll eat outside. And so I, I think you're right. I think a lot of these uh, line architectures will change permanently as a result of this. And, and Jennifer, how about you? Did the pandemic affect your business any particular way? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we there was no lines to wait in. Um, so we pivoted to offering delivery and assistance that way because it was obviously in high demand. But even after, you know, we're, we're definitely coming back to getting a lot of requests. However, a lot of the restaurants we used to wait in line for, for instance, restaurants that didn't take reservations, you had to line up in order to get a slot or put your name down for later. They have since changed their protocol where they only now take reservations. So that has has completely changed. All right. So we're going to uh, stop there in this particular segment. We do want to thank Richard Larson, professor of data systems and society at MIT, a.k.a. Dr. Q, Jennifer Goff, owner and founder of Skip the Line, a line sitting local delivery and personal assistance service. Let's take a little break. We will come back and we will talk about the line for the ladies room.
When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. All right, so some thank yous. Uh, we have a special thank you today, which is that Alan Yu, uh, a massive force in public radio, and of course also a Hong Kong martial arts movie star, uh, heard that we were working on this show, and it just turns out to be something that he's worked on too. And so he he did a lot of things to tell us. He told us about Dr. Q right away, so he helped us skip some steps. We sort of didn't have to wait in line for this show quite as long because Alan Yu uh, advanced us a, a few places, and it was just great to hear from him as well. Uh, and, of course, as usual, and we are fortunate to have Cat Pastor, uh, who is running all the technical parts of this show, uh, and Lily Tyson, our senior producer, is the producer of this episode. And I believe Jonathan McPants has been jumping in doing some stuff here today. So it's all hands on deck for the line show. So here at the end, we're going to talk about the line that half of humankind hates uh, and, and maybe more. Uh, and I, I know that anytime I'm at like the Civic Center or something like that for a concert or a basketball game or something, and I, I walk by the women's, women's room line and there's this enormous spillage of people out into the hallway and sneaking all the way back down the corridors and I'm heading towards the men's room where I know no such conditions will exist. And I, I, I think two things. That is grotesquely unfair, and I'm so glad I'm a man. I think both of those things. Uh, here to talk a little bit more about this is uh, Stephen Soifer, a pre the president of the American Restroom Association. Uh, Steve Soifer, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Colin, for having me on. So I think this feels like a problem that has been so noticeable for so long that it should have been solved. <laughs> and I think a lot of women waiting in line to go to the bathroom feel that way quite acutely. Like, why hasn't this been solved? Is there an easy answer to that question? Well, yes and no. Uh, part of it is, of course, as public restrooms evolve, uh, originally they were intended for men. And then later on, only maybe in the 20s and 30s, uh, did they think about providing facilities for women because they tended to stay at home. I think in our modern, modern society, we have a real problem because plumbing codes are written to provide restrooms in equal proportion to uh, men and women. And it's only been recently uh, that women naturally so have been protesting the situation with the uh, God uh, awfully lines that you see, Broadway comes to mind. Uh, obviously, a lot of women can't get back for the second half of the performance because they're still waiting in line to use the restroom. So it's it's a real problem. 
So one way that it can be addressed and is starting to be addressed is through governmental regulations. There's a movement that is sometimes referred to as potty parity. Uh, and and so, I mean, right, that's a, that's one option is that instead of just saying, OK, there has to be an equal number uh, of toilets for, for both sexes or whatever, you say, no, we got to fix this in a way that's more reflective of the problem. And first of all, what do you think of that? And, and second of all, to what degree does that seem to be a, a coming thing? Well, my colleague, uh, Catherine Anthony, who's the vice president uh, of organization and also a professor of architecture at the University of Illinois, she has been championing uh, potty parity for a long time and even testified before Congress uh, about a decade ago on this issue. And it is a partial solution to the problem, especially in large venues, concerts, uh, arenas, stadiums, uh, sometimes bars and things like that. So I do think that uh, in those states that have adopted potty parity, and there are roughly 21 now that have it and hundreds of municipalities, it does help. Um, But as some people pointed out, sometimes even a two to one ratio isn't sufficient. You might need three or even four to one, depending on, you know, the particular venue. So our most recent solution is what we call single occupancy, all gender toilets. And, you know, these are just, uh, as they call them in Europe, cabinets of fully enclosed water closets that uh, anyone can use. And uh, I had an experience recently using it at uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater in uh, Morrison, Colorado during a concert. And it's great because what you have is a queue, but it's an equal queue. Men and women are both waiting to use these genderless uh, water closets. And it equalizes the situation for everyone. And I'm seeing this more and more in restaurants and uh, bars where the owners will put in uh, gender-neutral toilets uh, so that you don't have an unequal uh, situation where you might have a queue for the women's bathroom and not have one for the men's room. Right. It wasn't a U2 concert at Red Rocks, was it? Because we like to sort of keep everything kind of, you know, tied together here. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, and we should say that, so I first of all, that seems like the right idea. I mean, if it's possible to have this sort of right. u- unisex uh, single occupancy cabinet or whatever. Uh, but Although it really kind of reverses things too, right? Because in a way, the problem has always been exacerbated or maybe even caused by the fact that the average woman takes 70, 79 seconds in the bathroom while the average man takes 45 seconds. Or, this may vary, but that's a Cornell study that says it. And of course, also sometimes women are tasked with bringing children into the bathroom and that's going to take things even longer. But now if you go to the single sex thing and everybody's in the same line, it's actually the men who are probably sitting there thinking, wow, it really does take them longer than it takes me. Well, if you even notice, but you know, usually the line might come out the door and you don't know who's coming in and out of the cabinets. I think you know, like at the uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater, there must be 10 or 12 uh, in two different locations. Uh, so I think that um, it's less obvious, obviously, than if there's only like two or three uh, stalls and uh, let's say it's just the women's line and you'll notice that someone's coming out with uh, their kids. And 
I think it takes an average of five to 10 minutes for uh, yes. women or in some cases men, depending on the situation, bringing their kids into the uh, you know, stall or water closet and taking care of uh, business, which is why the other trend that's really important, and I see it more and more everywhere, are family restrooms. Mm. Uh, these restrooms allow people to go in with their kids and you have the little short toilet, you have a changing table. It's set up for that exact situation. And if you have that and a family can use that, then you don't have that situation in terms of waiting in line. Right. I don't expect the president of the American Restroom Association to take a uh, open position about this. But the other thing we a lot of us experience, and I experience it very acceptingly and forgivingly, is women just going into the men's room. <laughs> you know, if you're going to miss the second act of Hamilton, uh, yeah, just come on in and just do whatever you got to do. And I, I don't I've rarely seen a man uh, object to that kind of thing. We just got a couple of minutes left. And one thing I mean, I keep asking people about the pandemic, but the pandemic obviously uh, affected. Uh, the the world of restrooms in lots of different ways. I mean, Starbucks mm. kind of famously has uh, has had an open restroom policy, but suddenly, you know, the more people you've got around, uh, the less safe people feel. True, and uh, in fact, uh, that very reason is why Starbucks now is, in some places, limiting you know the use of restrooms. Uh, either to customers or in some cases, uh, not letting people use them at all. And this actually probably violates the building codes uh, that local municipalities and states have adopted. So we have a beef with Starbucks about that, or we have a coffee with them about it. And I think that, you know, the biggest problem of course, is just lack of restroom facilities, period more and more cities are talking about, you know, the need to put in more public restrooms, period, to help with the problem, in, in particular of tourists who can't find public restrooms in a major city like New York. And it's just infuriating to my friends in Europe and whatnot to come over and not be able to find bathrooms and then find them terribly constructed compared to European standards. Right. So we have to stop there. But thanks to Stephen Seifer, who is, in fact, the uh, president of the American Restroom Association. I should say that we actually did ask uh, your colleague, Catherine Anthony, the vice president. I know. Um, and, and she's stuck in a women's room line at Chipotle and she can't be on the show. Today. So it was very unfortunate. But thank right. you. Thank you for jumping in. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. But thanks to everybody who listened today. And, you know, you got to go. You got to go. So go. Best